Hey, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we have uh, been in this series through the book of Ephesians, and we are very rapidly coming to an end to the series. We have uh, three weekends left, including this weekend. And this weekend, we come across a really important passage in the book of Ephesians because it's a passage all about the marriage relationship. It's a passage all about husbands and wives. And so before we take our offering today and go into our next song, um, to set the stage for what we're going to look at today, I'd love to read this passage ahead of time. So we're going to have the words on the screen. Uh, I'm in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, and this is what it says. It says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does at the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and shall be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, Paul writes, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. So I want to start out by sharing with you an interesting story that I came across this past week. Uh, we're going to go ahead and put a picture on the screen. It's a picture of a woman by the name of Donalyn Andrews. Donalyn Andrews. And uh, earlier this month, Donalyn Andrews had something kind of cool happen to her. So recently, she and her friends, they decided that they wanted to take a, a big trip somewhere. I think it was a trip out of country. And as she and her friends were gathering together and they were planning all the details for this particular trip, as they were discussing, they realized that everybody in their group of friends either had someone in their family that was sick in some way or someone in their family that was elderly in some way. And so therefore, there was the potential that something could happen that would make it not possible for them to go on this trip. And so as they were discussing, they decided that it was probably best for all of them to buy trip insurance in case they had to cancel this trip. And so they all went out and they all decided they all got trip insurance. And Donalyn is a school teacher. And by the way, doesn't she look like a school teacher? Isn't that just a classic school teacher look? But she is a school teacher. And being a school teacher, Donalyn knows the virtue, the importance of reading the instructions. She knows the importance of reading the fine print. And so when she got the documentation to go with this trip insurance, she sat down one night and she started to do what most of us don't do. She started to actually read through it. And when she got to page seven of the documentation, she came across an interesting line. On page seven of this document, it said, and I quote, it said, if you've read this far, then you are one of the very few Tin Lake customers to read all of their policy documentation. And it says, if you are the first person to email this email address, and it gave the email address, we will award you $10,000. Now, can you imagine coming across a phrase like that? Can you imagine how much your heart would be beating out of your chest, right? So immediately, Donalyn, of course, she reached for her phone. She emailed this email address. And less than 24 hours later, she got a response back. And it said that out of the 73 or so contracts that had been written up until that point and given to people, 
She was the first person to read that. She was the first person to respond. And so as a result of that, she got $10,000. Isn't that so cool? Doesn't that make you want to read all these license agreements that we agreed to on our phones and our iPads day after day after day? Well, let me tell you something. Don't bother because I read them this past week and there's nothing there, okay? But I love that story. I love that story. I love that story for a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons I love that story is because it confirmed to me something that I have always known. And that is that everybody in this world can be separated into two groups of people, okay? And that is those who like to read the fine print and those who don't. Those who like to read, you know, the instruction manuals that come along with the new TV and the new phone and the new toaster and those who don't. Now, Friends Church, knowing me the way that you know me, what type of person do you think I am? Yeah, I like to read the instruction manual. I do. In fact, we got a new dishwasher a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't wait to sit down and read that instruction manual. I like to read the instruction manuals. And one of the reasons I like to read the fine print and the instruction manuals is, especially instruction manuals, I cannot tell you how many times in reading an instruction manual for a new product that I got where I came across a feature that would have otherwise gone unnoticed if I had not read it. You see, the reason I like instruction manuals is because they are usually written by or they're written in close connection with those who actually wrote the product itself. It's the best thing you can get, closest thing you can get to talking to the inventor. And I happen to have a philosophy. And my philosophy is that when you use something according to its design, you get the most out of it. When you use something according to its design, you get the most out of it. And I say that by way of introduction. Because today, we are looking at a passage of Scripture that I think is the closest we can get to on this earth of an instruction manual for marriage. This passage we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 5, it is the longest sustained treatment we have in our Bibles on the subject of marriage. And because we believe that our Bible is the Word of God, that ultimately it is God Himself who sits behind these words... And because we believe that who is it that designed marriage? It's God himself. God is the designer of marriage. What we have in this passage is we have the designer of marriage telling us how he designed marriage to operate. This is, I think, the instruction manual on marriage itself. That's what we're looking at here today. But given that fact, there's also something else that's interesting about our passage today. And the passage that we're looking at today is also probably the most controversial passage in the entire book of Ephesians. We have a tough, tough passage we're looking at today. And by the way, just as an aside here, is it just me or do you also feel like I end up getting all the hard passages in this church? <laughs> Okay, it's not just me, is it? So after seven years, I am finally on to Matthew, and I know what he's doing. He didn't have anywhere he had to be this week, and he just didn't want to teach this passage, and he gives it to me. And I don't blame him, because it is tough. This is probably the most controversial passage in the book of Ephesians. And I know, I know that as, as you were reading it, as I was reading it earlier, I know that some of your eyes were trained on one little phrase in this particular passage. And that is the phrase in verse 22, repeated again in verse 24, where Paul says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And I can think of few phrases in the Bible that are more contentious than that particular one. And, and, and listen, I want to say up front here that I get it, okay? I get the controversy surrounding this particular passage. Because the sad truth of the matter is that there have been horrible things that have been done over the years 
in the name of this particular passage. In fact, I am sickened to think of the number of women who have had to undergo physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, sexual abuse, all in the name of, 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 of Ephesians 5.22. And that's why I want to make it very clear at the beginning of my message that any abuse that has ever been done in the name of Ephesians 5.22 is a gross perversion of what God's Word says here. And I want to let husbands know that if you have ever committed abuse and justified it by using Ephesians 5.22, or if you committed abuse in general and you have not repented of it, that one day you are going to have to stand before God and you are going to learn from the judge himself what you have done. I believe that. And it's because of the abuse that has been done in the name of this passage that it seems easier today just to sort of skip over it or just to gloss over that word or, or even to explain this passage away and say something like, well, this is what they used to do, but we live in a different day and age and we don't have to do this anymore. But as appealing as that may sound, and although that would have made my job a lot easier this past week, I just can't do that. I believe that this is God's word for all people for all time. And I believe because God is our designer, this is the instruction manual, if you will, for our lives. And I believe that when we live according to our design, we get the most out of life. And when I believe that when we live according to God's design for marriage, we get the most out of the marriage relationship. So what we're going to do today is we're going to dive headlong into this passage. We are going to see what Paul says here. Equally as important, we're going to see what Paul doesn't say here. And then we're going to take a step back and we're going to wrestle with what it means for all of us. So let's begin here in verse 21. I want to read verses 21 through 24 again to set the stage for the first part of this message. This is what Paul writes. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. We'll stop right there. Here's what we're going to do today, okay? This past week, I came up with two summary statements that I believe summarize the major teachings of this passage. The first summary statement is for verses 21 through 24. And this summary statement is addressed to wives because that's who Paul addresses in this part of the passage. The second summary statement I'm going to give you a little bit later, and that's for verses 25 through 33, and that is addressed to husbands because that's who Paul addresses in the second part of this passage. And both of these summary statements that I'm going to give you today, they all come under the same heading. And that is the heading of God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage. So if you like to take notes, you may want to write that down somewhere. God's design for marriage. And the first statement is this, based on verses 21 through 24, it is this. God has called wives to recognize and, when appropriate, to yield to their husband's leadership in marriage. God has called wives to recognize and, when appropriate, to yield to their husband's leadership in marriage. That is the major point that I think these first four verses are teaching here. God has called wives to recognize and, when appropriate, to yield to their husband's leadership in marriage. That's what I believe this teaches. Now let me show you how I get that. As I was studying this passage this past week, I realized something that I had never realized before in years of studying this passage. And that is, although verse 22 and this call for wives to submit to their husbands, although that is what usually gets the most attention in this passage, it is absolutely not the most important verse in this passage. I actually think the most important verse in this passage is what Paul says in the verse following that, in verse 23. And the reason I say that is because I think verse 23 gives us the principle 
upon which really the rest of this passage sits, and in many ways, it gives us actually one of the foundational principles upon which the Christian view of marriage sits. And that principle is this. It's that in the marriage relationship, there is a unique role that God has called the husband to. And that is that God has called the husband to be the leader of the marriage relationship. Let me say that again. In the marriage relationship, according to the Bible, it seems as though, it appears as though, there is a unique role that God has called the husband to. And that is that God has called the husband to be the leader of the marriage relationship. This is what Paul is saying in verse 23 when he says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And the key word there is the word head. And what we need to realize about the word head is the word head as it's used there, it's a leadership term. Okay? It's a leadership term. In fact, we still use this word in that way today. Today we talk about the head of a company. We talk about the head of a university. She over there is the head of that nonprofit. And when we use that word head in that sense, what do we mean? We mean leader, right? The one who sets the direction for. Head is a leadership team term. And what Paul is saying in this passage is he is saying that in a similar way to the fact that Jesus Christ has been given the role as the leader of the church, the head of the church, you may not know this, but you need to know this, the ultimate head of this church is not Matthew, it's not our elders, it's Jesus himself. In a similar way to the fact that Jesus has been given the role of the head, the leader of the church, so in a marriage relationship, God has given the husband a role. And that is he has called the husband to be the leader of the marriage relationship. That's what Paul is saying here. The husband is called by God to be the head, to be the leader of the marriage relationship. Now, I know that this itself can be very controversial to some of you, especially if you have never heard this before. And this definitely goes against sort of the pervasive wisdom of our time. I think sort of the pervasive wisdom of our time, right, is that the best marriage is a partnership of equals coming together. And if that's the case, then why does God appoint a leader? Why does a marriage relationship have to have a leader? Well, that is an excellent question. And I'm going to answer that question. But before I do that, let me make it very clear what this doesn't mean, okay? The fact that God has called the husband to be the leader of the marriage relationship, I want to make clear It says nothing about the value, the worth, or the dignity of the wife in God's eyes. The fact that God has called the husband to be the leader of the marriage relationship says nothing about the value, the worth, the dignity of the wife in God's eyes. You may want to write this reference somewhere down, in fact, next to Ephesians chapter 5, and that's Galatians 3.28. And Galatians 3.28 is probably the most important verse in the Bible when it comes to how God views us human beings here on this earth. And in Galatians 3.28, Paul says the following. We'll put it on the screen. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what is that verse saying? That verse is saying that we are all equal in God's eyes. We are all equal in God's eyes. It does not matter your ethnicity, Jew or Gentile. It does not matter your social standing, slave or free. And it does not matter your gender, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal in God's eyes. And just so you know, this was unheard of in this day and age. 
Almost every other religion at this time, almost every other philosophy at this time that the Bible was written taught that women were inferior to men. The Bible stands alone practically in saying, no, men and women are equal. They are equal in God's eyes. And so the fact that God has called the husband to be the leader of the marriage relationship, it says nothing about the value, the worth, the dignity of the wife in God's eyes. So if that's the case, then why a leader? Why does God appoint a leader in marriage? Well, the answer to that is very, very practical. It's a way to bring unity to the marriage relationship. It's a way to bring peace to the marriage relationship. I want you to imagine for a second, I want you to imagine that you and your spouse are facing a disagreement. Now, I know that never happens among anybody in this church, but just imagine for a second that you and your spouse are in the middle of a disagreement. And I want you to imagine this is a big disagreement. You are at an impasse, in fact. You want to go right, your spouse wants to go left. And this disagreement is so big that it threatens the marriage relationship itself. But because you have a Christian marriage, because you believe the Bible is to be the Word of God, you know that divorce is only allowed in limited circumstances. So if that's the case, here's my question for you. How do you remain united in such a situation? How do you remain united though you are divided? Well, if a marriage were between three people, perish the thought, right? But if a marriage were between three people, this would be really easy because all you'd have to do is take a vote. And then it would be majority rules, right? And whoever lost, they would have to go along with everybody else. And so it would be easy in that situation. But a marriage is not between three people. A marriage is between two people. And there's no voting when there's two people, right? There's no majority rules when there's two people. So how do you stay united in such a case? How do you stay together though you are divided? God has come up with a plan. He has said, I have called the husbands to be the leader of the marriage relationship. I have called the husbands to set the direction of the marriage. Now, why did God say that to the husband and not the wife? I don't know. I think God could have just as easily chosen the wife. He just didn't choose to. He chose the husband. And it's out of this call, it's out of this responsibility that God gives the husband that we then find the call to wives in Ephesians 5.22 to submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And as I said, I know that there is a lot of controversy surrounding that verse. But I think that at least part of the controversy, not all, but at least part of the controversy actually comes from a misunderstanding of what Paul says there and not what Paul actually says. You see, I think when many of us, I think when we read Ephesians 5.22, what we do, either consciously or subconsciously, is there's a switch that we perform in our brain. And what we do is we read that word submit there. And actually, in its place, we, we, we substitute the word obey. And we think that what Paul is doing here is he's calling wives to obey their husbands and everything that they ask them to do. Well, listen, if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this. That is not what Paul is saying here. There is a Greek word for obey. Paul will use it in the passage that we look at next week. There is a Greek word for obey. Paul knows it. Paul has no problem using it. Paul does not use it in this passage. Instead, Paul used, chooses his word here very carefully. The Greek word translated submit here is the Greek word hupostasso. 
Hupastaso. It's kind of a weird sounding word. Sounds a little bit like a disease, right? Hupastaso. And hupastaso, at the root of hupastaso, is the Greek word for order or the Greek word for structure. And what Paul is picking up on here is something fundamental about our God. And that is that our God is a God of order. Our God is a God of structure. He is a God who has put order and structure into the very fabric of the universe that he has created. In fact, I was thinking about it this past week. I cannot think of a single institution that God has designed that does not have some order or structure to it. I can't think of a single institution that God has designed where he did not appoint some people to be leaders. I think of Israel in the Old Testament. I think of the church in the New Testament. I even think of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus returns to this earth, just so you know, it is not going to be a free-for-all. There are going to be rulers that God appoints. God has a history of asking certain people, tasking certain people with the responsibility of being a leader. God has a history of doing that. And if God is going to appoint some people to be leader, if God is going to give some people the responsibility of being a leader, then there has to be a corresponding call to other people to recognize the leadership that he has appointed. God can't, for example, say, I want churches to appoint leaders, which he does, by the way. He asks churches to do that. God can't say, I want churches to appoint leaders, and then say to everybody else, but you don't have to listen to what they say. No, if God is going to appoint leaders, then there has to be a corresponding call for other people to recognize those leaders. And that's what the word hupostasso really means. Here's my definition for hupostasso. Here's my definition for submit. To hupostasso is to recognize the order that God has established in things and to respond accordingly. To hupostasso is to recognize the order that God has established in things and to respond accordingly. And wives, that is what God has asked you to do in the marriage relationship. Women, let me make something very clear to you, okay? One of the reasons why people resist this idea of the husband being a leader in a marriage is I have heard, I've even heard some husbands say before, listen, my wife is more accomplished than I am. Okay, she is a senior executive at her company. She leads teams of hundreds of people. She does not need a man to lead her. And you know what I say to that? You are absolutely right. Women, you do not need a man to lead you. You do not need a man to take care of you. And God doesn't believe that you need a man to lead you or to take care of you. If he did, he would require all of us to get married. But he doesn't require all of us to get married. In fact, in several places in the Bible, it suggests it's better to remain single. And after this message today, many of you are going to agree with that particular thing. <laughs> the fact that God has called the husband to be the leader of the marriage relationship, it's not God saying, women, you need a leader. You, you don't need a man to lead you. You can take care of yourself. But what God is saying is this, that when you choose to get married, when you enter into the marriage relationship, would you recognize that in the way I've designed the marriage relationship, and this is only for the marriage relationship, this is not for any generic relationship between a man and a woman, this is exclusive to the marriage relationship. When you get into the marriage relationship, would you recognize that I have given your husband a responsibility? For the sake of peace and for the sake of unity, I've asked him to be the leader. It says nothing about your worth or value. In my eyes, nothing like that. It's just the way I've ordered it. It's just the way I've arranged it. And out of reverence to me, don't miss the phrase, as you do to the Lord at the end of verse 22. Out of reverence for me, 
I am asking you to recognize the responsibility that I have given your husband, and again, for the sake of peace and for the sake of unity, to respond accordingly. When it is appropriate to yield to the leadership of your husband. That's the call that has been placed on wives. And what does this look like practically? Well, we can think of a few things, okay? I think it means, wives, that you are called to encourage and to support your husbands. And by the way, your husbands are called to encourage and support you as well. I think it means that you are called to give input into your husband as he sets the direction of your marriage and your family. And then once that, direct, once that direction gets set, that we resist the urge to undermine that direction or to undermine our husbands. I think it means that you make a vow to never demean your husband in front of your children or in front of anybody else for that matter. And I think it also means, yes, that when a disagreement arises, after you have talked about it and after you have prayed about it, if your husband makes a decision that ultimately you don't agree with, if it doesn't go against the word of God, then humbly you choose to yield to that decision. I think that's what it looks like. And listen, women, I want to admit this is hard, okay? You have been given a difficult role. I know that. And that's why I want to say two things. First of all, this call is not a call to remain silent in the marriage relationship. Kathy Verhoeven, our women's pastor, she says when she teaches this passage to women, she tells women, you are to submit your opinion to your husband. In other words, you are to let your, your husband know what it is that, that you desire, what it is that you want. And as we'll see in just a second, if your husband is fulfilling his responsibility, your opinion will be the most important thing to him in making a decision. Absolutely it will be. So this is not a call to remain silent. You are to tell your spouse what you think and feel and believe about issues. And then the second thing is this. This is a choice on your part. No one can make you do this. I want you to observe how verse 22 is worded. Verse 22 does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. Interestingly, that's how other faiths word this. In fact, if you look at the Quran, the religious text of the Muslim faith, for the most part, that's what it says. It says, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. That's not what Paul says here. Paul addresses wives directly. What does that mean? It means men, it is not our responsibility to make sure our wives do this. I don't think the word submit, yield, follow, anything like that should ever be on our lips. This is not our responsibility. This is a call that God places directly in, in the lap of our wives, and it's for them to decide what they're going to do with it. And just so you know, wives, there are times when it is absolutely not appropriate to yield to the leadership of your husband. And that's why I've worded this the way that I did. Uh, Acts 5.29 comes to mind when the apostles say we must obey God rather than human beings. And what that verse tells us is it tells us we are never to do something that anybody says if it causes us to go against the word of God. Uh, women, I do not believe you, you should yield to your husband's leadership if, if he asks you to stop going to church. Women, I do not believe that God would have you yield to your husband's leadership if he asked you to do something sinful or illegal. God would not have you yield to your husband's leadership if he asked you to do something degrading in the bedroom. And he would not have you yield to your husband's leadership if he asked you or your children to endure any sort of physical, emotional, sexual, psychological, spiritual abuse. In fact, in those situations, I think God would say, get out of the house and seek help and seek support and contact the authorities in that case. We're not to submit in all those situations, yes. But in other situations where it does not go against the word of God, 
This is a call that God has placed in your lap. And this is the call given to wives. God has called wives to recognize and, when appropriate, to yield to their husband's leadership in marriage. That's the call of wives. Husbands, now it's your turn. And now I can take a little breath of relief, okay? I'm much firmer footing when I get here. Here's, your turn. Here's what, what you're called to. We have a responsibility as well. And our responsibility is this. Husbands are called to lead a marriage exclusively through sacrifice and self-giving love. Husbands are called to lead a marriage exclusively through sacrifice and self-giving love. Men, there are two things I want you to realize. First, our wives are not the only ones who are called to submit in the Christian life. All of us are called to submit. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 21 when he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what do you see about this verse? This is gender neutral. This is to men and women. This is to husbands and wives. We're all called to submit to each other in the Christian relationship. We're all called to yield to each other. In fact, those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, verses 21 and 22 are one continual sentence in the original Greek, and the verb submit is actually not even repeated in verse 22. So literally, verses 21 and 22 read this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, comma, wives to your husbands. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, comma, wives to your husbands. In other words, the call for wives to submit to their husbands comes out of a larger call for all of us to submit to one another. And this is the Christian life. We're all called to treat one another as more important than ourselves. We're all called to put others before ourselves. And so it's not just our wives that are called to do this. We're all called to do this. That's the first thing. And then the second thing I want you to know is this. Yes, 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 we are given the responsibility, I believe, of being leaders in the marriage relationship. But here's what you need to realize about leadership in the Bible. Leadership in the Bible is never a privilege, and it's always a responsibility. Leadership in Scripture is never a privilege. It's always a responsibility. Remember verse 23. Remember what Paul says there. He says, the husband is the head of the wife in what way? As Christ is the head of the church. Men, how did Christ show his leadership to the church? He gave his life for the church. He died for us. And that's exactly what we're called to do for our wives. Look with me at verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. In what way? Just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. I like what Francis Chan says on this. He says, the Bible tells men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Think about that. Jesus did not sit in heaven just talking about his feelings for you. His love went way beyond words and feelings. Jesus was all about action, all about sacrifice. And he tells husbands to follow his example. We cannot display Christ's love without hurting. Jesus gave himself for the church that speaks of his death. There was nothing he withheld from his bride. Men, I think if we really fulfilled our calling the way that Paul says here, there would not be the controversy surrounding this verse that there is. Because then every decision that we made would be a decision with our wives' best interests at heart. And it would be easy for them to yield to our leadership. But the simple fact of the matter is, and I'm speaking generally here because there are always exceptions to this. But the simple fact of the matter is, I think generally our wives are better at fulfilling their callings than we are at fulfilling our callings. I think personally of the number of dumb things I have done in my marriage. And the selfish ways that I have acted. And yet I have received nothing from my wife but constant love and support and encouragement. Why My wife excels at her calling. I'm not so good at mine. And what Paul makes clear in this passage is that when I fail to care for my wife, I'm actually failing to care for myself. 
This is what Paul says in verse 28 when he tells us not only to love as Christ loved the church, but in verse 28 he says this, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And what Paul is picking up on here is the supernatural event that occurred when we got married. When we got married, what happened? We became one flesh with our spouse, which means that our spouse became a part of us men, which means that when our spouse is neglected, we are neglected. When our spouse is not cared for, we're not cared for. When our spouse is grieving, guess what? We're grieving. And so if we really show the the leadership that Paul calls us to, we would see that leadership is never self-serving. If we were to really lead the way that Paul tells us to lead, we would always put ourselves last in our family. And we would always put our wives before us. I really think that if we followed what Paul says here, I think that as men, we would take less promotions than we usually do. Typically do, I should say. Because we know that with each promotion comes increased responsibility and therefore usually more time at the office and more of a strain and a burden on our wives. If we really follow what Paul says here, then any time our wife comes to us with an idea, I think this would be cool, I'd really like to try this, then we would do whatever we could to encourage her and support her in that. And if we really follow what Paul said here, we would make a vow that we would never lust after another woman or look at another woman inappropriately for the dishonor it would bring to the marriage relationship. And instead, we would focus all of our energy and all of our attention on making our wife feel valued and appreciated and loved and beautiful. That's how we lead. We lead by giving. We lead by loving. That's God's design for marriage. And listen, I know, I know that a talk like this, it it raises a lot of questions that some of you have. And a lot of scenarios that are going on in your mind. But Chris, what about this situation? And what about that situation? And my, my, my spouse is not a believer. What do I do then? And listen, part of my burden as a pastor, part of the, the difficulty of my job is in the time I have, I cannot address every situation that, that is around here today. But what I can do is I can connect you to resources that can help. And so if, if you want to have questions that you want answered about this, Or I know some of you are in very difficult, very toxic relationships, and you want some help in that. Or if you even want to watch a message that we gave where we talked on some of these issues, but I was able to go in some areas in a little bit more detail than I am right now, uh, we've created a website, friends.church/marriages. And if you go to friends.church/marriages, you will be connected to some resources that we have. And so I would encourage you to check that out. But as I draw things to a close here today, let me say this, okay? I know that some of the stuff that I said here today, I know that it sounds still pretty old-fashioned to some of you. And maybe even to a few people here, it sounds a little barbaric. And I understand that. But here's the question I have for you. Are the alternatives that we have come up with to what the Bible says, are they really working? Are the alternatives we have come up with for marriage, are they really working? I like what N.T. Wright says. He says, if Paul's words still seem outrageous in today's culture, we should ask ourselves, do our modern societies in which marriage is often a tragedy or a joke really offer a better model of how to do it? Does the specter of broken homes littering modern Western culture indicate that we've got it right and can tell the rest of human history how we finally resolve the battle of the sexes? Or does it indicate that we still need to do some rethinking somewhere? 
And he's right. You know, over the past 50, 60 years, whatever, we have sort of reacted against the Bible's teaching on marriage. And we've tried all these other models. And what do we have to show for it? Increasing divorce rates. And actually these days, fewer and fewer people who want to get married in the first place. Why do you think that is? Could it be because we have ignored the instruction manual on marriage? Could it be because we have ignored God's design for marriage? Can we admit here today that maybe, just maybe, God kind of knows what he's talking about? You know, I know this stuff is countercultural. And I know it's just plain hard. It's hard to live this out. But if this is the word of God, we have to wrestle with this. And that's why I hope my words today, I hope it serves to you as a catalyst. A catalyst to really consider personally whether or not you're living according to what God's word says here. Men, are you loving your wives as Christ loved the church? Are you leading your family exclusively through sacrifice and through self-giving love? And wives, are you, are you yielding to your husband's leadership? Are you respecting your husband the way the Bible says? If you are, great. Continue doing it. Continue growing in that area. But if you're not, guess what? It's not too late to start. It's never too late to start.